This is the Business of Apps podcast, bringing you actionable insights from the leaders of the global app industry and the world's fastest growing apps. You can find more app news, data and analysis over at businessofapps.com. Welcome to the Business of Apps podcast. On this show, we invite app industry professionals to cover various topics. We promise to do our best to keep it both insightful, but brief. In this episode, we have Rajesh Janakerman, Engineering Manager, Gmail, Android, and Google. Rajesh, welcome to the Business of Apps podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be here and share more about my experiences building these apps for billions of users. Cool. Thank you for coming. This is great. Right. Um, before we're going to start, let me set the stage. Um, one of the things that set mobile apps apart from desktop software is the scale. From 2008, when the mobile app stores were launched and on, scale has been a crucial ingredient for any iOS or Android app project success. For both Apple's and Google's app ecosystems to grow, mobile apps had to be affordable for lots of people. But for app developers and brands to make app enterprises profitable, they had to acquire a big number of users. And there's more. In some cases, when we talk about the free app from one of the most influential companies on the planet, Gmail app, we're talking about roughly 1.8 billion users. This scale implies some unique challenges we're going to be discussing with Rajesh today. But first, let's kick off with talking about you, Rajesh. Please tell us about yourself and your background in tech. Of course, yeah. Uh, so I currently manage an engineering team on Gmail Android. Uh, so I've been at Google for about six months now, so fairly recent. Um, and for those who are not aware, which uh, I'm not sure is a lot of people, but uh, Gmail is the largest email service in the world with, like you said, over a billion active users. Uh, it is completely free, and it was first launched, I believe, in 2004, which is almost 20 years ago now. Um, and prior to Google, I was at Meta, formerly called Facebook, uh, for over eight years. Um, and while there, my focus was all things Android on the Facebook app. Uh, so I've built authentication libraries, security systems, uh, animation libraries, uh, design systems and everything in between. Uh, and in the period that I was at Facebook, I got to see the Facebook ecosystem go from uh, a little over a billion users to several billion. I think around the time I left it was almost 3 billion users. Uh, so yeah, I got to see multiple apps that are thriving in the billions of users ecosystem. <laughs> Yeah, so we're running out of billions at this point for these apps. Uh, we need more people from other plans to join. <laughs> and yeah, um, I like probably folks who were born on Mars, they haven't heard about Gmail by now. But for any people who are from this planet, they should be at least aware of the app, or if not using it on a daily basis. Yep. Um, what was it like to switch from being Gmail user to become an engineer manager at Gmail Android? Was it like, finally, I can fix this and do that? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I ever since Gmail became fully open to public, I think right around 2007, because there was a brief period where it was like invite only, um, I've almost like 
grown up alongside Gmail, uh, where a lot of my initial use cases to it were, uh, you know, back then smartphones hadn't taken off all that much. So it was a lot of like communication with friends and family through email. Um, and Google had a product called Google Talk, I believe, which was like an instant messaging service uh, right in Gmail. And so I would communicate a lot with friends and family through through email, through Google Talk. I don't know if this was like just me, but it was also one of the first like large uh, online storage available. I think they were giving out like one gigabyte, which was a lot of storage. So I would find myself just like emailing myself attachments for things that I wanted to keep secure uh, yeah. when I didn't trust USB drives. <laughs> Uh, so that was like early use cases, but more recently, you know, while a lot of our communication has transferred to more real-time apps like WhatsApp and Messenger and FaceTime, uh, I think Gmail still continues to be an incredibly valuable product for life management for me. Uh, you know, like a lot of my online accounts are managed on Gmail. Uh, you know, I still use it heavily for communication with um, colleagues, acquaintances, uh, you know, like when I'm setting up discussions with people I've never met. Um, and I'd say that the sort of like common thread in the two decades that it's been around is, is just trust. Because like, if you want to use it for life management, particularly, you have to be able to trust that your data is safe. You have to be able to trust that uh, you're, you're going to get the emails that you have to get and you have to trust that, you know, when financial institutions or banks send you information that, you know, that data is secure and that nothing is going to happen to your data. Um, and having a product maintain that reputation for so long is a very difficult thing to do. Um, and so when I went from being a Gmail consumer to like an engineering manager on the product, I think that was the most striking thing for me, which is like looking at the underlying technology and like what made it so robust and uh, what made it continue to hold that reputation of stability, consistency, reliability for such a long period of time. Um, you get to see artifacts uh, because of the age of the product, you get to see artifacts of the technology as it has evolved over time, you know, like both pluses and minuses, like I said, uh, you get to see what has made it such a sustainable product over such a long time, but you also get to see all of the tech debt that it has accumulated from decades of evolving technology, like different people working on it. Uh, so it's it's a mixed bag and it's very exciting to see uh, how the product has evolved over time. And uh, you also get to see, which you've never had uh, visibility to before, the breadth of users for the product, because uh, you know, like you, uh, you, you sort of see like really obscure use cases. Um, you were like, oh, I didn't know people would use that for use Gmail for that specific use case, but here we are. Uh, and then, if that use case is large enough, you know, that becomes something that you have to consistently support. Uh, yes, on your map. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, like you you constantly have to make these trade-offs of like, is this the direction that we want the product to go in, even though you know there's a lot of users that are using it for this specific purpose. Uh, so yeah, you get a lot of visibility into like technology users, um, and it's it's a very thrilling experience. 
you're saying a lot of artifacts from previous versions and it reminds me the other big project on this planet human genome <laughs> for people who are really into genetics they do see a lot of artifacts from previous generations <laughs> of the species where <laughs> we came from so gmail is kind of on the scale of the system of that that complexity so there's no way you can at some point say okay guys we're going to be redoing the whole thing from scratch the world cannot just stop and wait for you guys to spend a few years to build a new app from ground up Exactly. You have to iterate on what was done before. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So um, Gmail uh, is, um, I used uh, like 10 years ago, uh, I used to remember then uh, in my work in my environment, a lot of conversations were, were, were going like, okay, we're going to be solving this thing on the email. And it always meant working out something on Gmail. So before Slack, people were just um, trying to kind of um, uh, mimic today's uh, chatting on Slack in Gmail, sending short messages back and forth. And so at some point, there would have um, entire project being developed there. Uh, and this is the work environment. Um, I'm trying to think what, what what about the current generation Gen Z because we're we're older obviously than Gen Z. As far as I can see right now, it looks like these folks will be joining the army of people using Gmail or email clients. Most likely Gmail, I think, uh, when they start working. So email is not relevant for them right now. So they're they're mm -hmm. living in the world of Snap, um, WhatsApp. Uh, and um, mail is not there yet. Yeah. But uh, once it's still working, um, every job um, and the related work, and uh, they're, get, they're getting ton, ton, tons of notifications if they're using photos, uh, um, a lot of like um, kind of uh, supportive tasks are still going through email. And obviously it's more like to a very robust, quick, and almost feels like, the instant messaging uh, experience right now because things are getting so fast. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we kind of forgot the moment when we were, I okay, guess, splitting the experience between, again, this is a desktop app. This is the uh, application built on the web. Mm -hmm. the, the, the line, the borders kind of blurred out uh, over the years by now, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think a lot of like the more direct communication has transitioned to like the apps that you were talking about. Um, but when it comes to email, it still is the primary form of communication when we want to discuss, uh, you know, like large forms of communication that people want to be able to track um, and, you know, particularly work conversations um, that doesn't have to be directly online that we want to like maintain some version of so that we can reference back. Uh, I am, I think, hasn't yet caught up to be like a sustainable form of uh, communication that people can use for more formal discussions. Um, and that's where I think email shines the most. Right. So you may end up in a few, like, uh, in a few years down the road, uh, you may end up in a situation when you need to recover something that was said uh, or exchanged with somebody in the past. And Gmail is the like a repository of all this information. 
because uh, recently I was looking for my email from 10 years ago, looking up for the information specific to some service to see if I, if I can find any traces of the password I was uh, setting up back then, which I just completely forgot about. But you can still dig up those details from there. It's still sitting there and it's safe, which is really important. Um, now let's switch on the challenges of building something from, you know, quarter of a <laughs> world's population. Uh, well, like this scale, as you're saying, implies many situations when regularly when you have uh, when you're on a lower scale, you can think of uh, any like per like way more like the repertoire of purposes is way bigger than the for regular app, right? Yep. Yeah, I've seen I've seen this sort of breadth both at Facebook and at uh, working on Gmail, and uh, so the I mentioned the breadth of users briefly, right? And it's such a massive set of users that you see this like whole spectrum of how they use the product. Um, for example, just from a pure uh, just from a pure uh, device perspective. You know, you see the latest $1,500 Samsung device running the latest version of Android with hundreds of GB of storage where it's not going to matter how much space you take up on their phone yeah. with multi-core processors where it's not going to matter how efficient your app is all the way to the $10 no-name smartphone that, uh, you know, ha has a few megabytes of storage that has barely enough space for them to use WhatsApp and Gmail and store their contacts. And, uh, you know, like it has very basic processors that make it very hard for the app to run. And there's more users on that $10 smartphone than there are on the $1,500 smartphone. So how do you provide an experience that is consistent, predictable, and reliable, even under those sort of conditions? Um, you know, like the, the, the $10 smartphone that I mentioned, you know, a lot of like the emerging countries, um, they're not using the Samsungs, they're using like your Oppos and your Vivos and your Micromaxes, uh, which are very basic phones. And so it is very important when you're operating at the scale to have to think about how do you create the best experience on those low end devices with the resources that you have. Yeah, this is like um, we you, you you may not be thinking about it when you're in the midst of your task and your workflow, but you're democratizing the platform from folks of all walks of life uh, with different income, um, different like um, like as different as it can can be, different cultures that they live in, and for some people, a smartphone can be the only device they're using. Um, they don't uh, just bother to buy a PC or a laptop. They're just trying to, you know, pour as much money as they, as they have to do single smartphone buying so-called phablets or their monthly income so low. So they only afford this very cheap uh, mm -hmm. smartphone. But yet you're providing them the platform to be connected with other folks who are living in the kind of a different world. Yeah. And um yeah, this is one of the things that never crossed my mind because uh, um, you only maybe get a gl glimpse of it when you're buying for somebody your relatively cheaper phone. All of a sudden, you can see, boy, this thing 
does not support the apps I would need to, to have like WhatsApp or other um, messengers. So what would be my communication channel with this device? So yeah, Gmail can be that bridge between all these different um, um, parts of culture, uh, different, um, you know, uh, level of incomes and whatever. Um, this is like the single point of like a, uh, the connecting bridge between these people. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so because of that, you have to spend a lot of time um, not just optimizing the performance of your app, but considering all of these different scenarios where uh, you have to operate under very minimal resourcing conditions, um, you know, like storage, CPU, um, you know, you'll encounter obscure bugs that happen on a very old version of Android because that person hasn't updated their phone in so long. Um, you'll encounter people, users who have not updated their apps in years uh, because they don't know to go to the Play Store and like update their app. Um, so you see a wide spectrum of like users and it, let's say you're, as, as a very quick example, like let's say a, a user who's on a very old version of Android is crashing. You now have to like be able to go back and figure out like what's going on with the app on this like really old version of Android. So yeah, a, a range of challenges um, that deal with the spectrum all across the ecosystems. Anything on the team management wise, like uh, people you're working with to solve these problems, you're not just alone trying to, you know, single-handed to wrestle all these problems. You're you're uh, on top of the team of folks who are doing this stuff, right? Yep. Yeah. So there's, there's actually an interesting anecdote um, from when I was at Facebook. Um, internationalization is very important at this scale, right? Because uh, you're serving the entire population of the earth and uh, you want to make sure the features you're building serve people in their languages and in their context. Um, so we had built this feature which would highlight words in your posts uh, and then it would play an animation. They're, they're happy words and so it would play happy animations with like balloons and confetti. Uh, and one of the words that would get highlighted is congratulations, um, except in Indonesia, the word for congratulations, which was salamat, also means I've survived colloquially. So in 2018, when there was an earthquake in Indonesia, a lot of people were saying salamat in that I've survived and they were commiserating. And on Facebook, we were playing balloon and confetti animations, like, so, which is like Not such really. a jarring experience, right? And so yeah. Facebook actually had to like publicly uh, apologize and then like it became a whole like PR event for them. But that's why it's so important when you're serving billions of users, you have to be able to understand what like local context is. You can make these mistakes where, you know, like you don't understand the individual context and like you don't understand the individual languages. Yeah, this is really important to be able to have um, either people like I'm, I don't think it's quite feasible to have people on your staff, uh, which can speak like a dozens and dozens of different languages, but you have to still be able to be in connection with some local help who can give you that, that who can basically help you out not to be in a position like you're just describing. 
and um, just always remember that cultures are different, um, different values. Uh, not only the language is different, but uh, I don't know, sense of humor, uh, things they prioritize in life, things how they celebrate uh, holidays may be different. Yeah. Um, what colors are being associated with happiness and vice versa? Because, you know, like white and black colors, is they're famous and not being consistent across the cultures, like which ones are being considered as a happy or sad one. So mm -hmm. this is extremely important when you're creating the graphics, like many things um, in your app should be relevant and uh, being uh, uh, like on the same uh, on the same page with the local culture. Yep, exactly. Yeah, um, I think none of the conversations these days can be complete without uh, using um, talking about generative AI, specifically ChatGPT or its equivalent uh, from you guys, Bart. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts about using chat generative AI in general in Gmail as a tool? Yeah, um, I think for, for those not in the know, like generative AI is essentially using a form of AI to generate content, right? So it could be music, it could be literature, um, it could be videos, um, and we've seen it take a significant presence in popular media this these last this last year. And in Gmail specifically, I think Gmail and a bunch of other Google's uh, workspace apps, I think Docs too, released uh, AI-powered writing recently, where uh, you know, like it would help you write emails and like. As a personal anecdote, my my parents still use Gmail to communicate with family, and so they they write in English, but they've grown up in India, so their English is not perfect. And they would often send me drafts and say, like, "Hey, can you polish this up before I yeah. send it to my friend or family?" And so that was like a week long exercise for them because you know, like they're on the other side of the planet and I don't always have time to do it immediately for them. Um, but with something like generative AI, like Gmail just helps them polish the email. And so there are, I think, a lot of applications for the technology in, in general. Um, and I think this is just a start. I'm really excited to see like what we can do with it uh, in all of our Google products. But there is a flip side to AI too, and that's that's where we have to be cautious. Um, Google's approach there has been to give control to the user. You know, ultimately AI does the suggesting, but the user is the one that decides uh, they want to send, they want to edit, and that kind of thing. Uh, but in the larger ecosystem as well, I think we have to approach uh, generative AI with responsibility. Uh, I don't know if you're looking at the Hollywood strike right now with SAG-AFTRA. And one of the issues they're having is that the Hollywood execs want to use AI replicas for free permanently yeah. from, from the actors. Uh, and so you're going to see a lot of these appear where it's going to change how we understand the world around us. And like we're going to have to evolve to deal with it more responsibly. Yeah. Um... The recent interview of uh, DeepMind, the CEO, comes to mind when he was talking about Google's approach being both bold and responsible, moving forward quick, but still uh, remember about the responsibility that comes with the challenges of that scale. So um, otherwise, 
um, we may encounter a situation later on when a lot of externalities uh, came up, which uh, could be foreseeable, not of them out of your sight. It's just a matter of effort. Uh, do your best to be cautious. And it, it, this is not to say you can catch up, like you can catch all of them, but at least doing as best as we can to foresee a lot of problems in advance is a really good effort for any software developer at this point. We long passed the time when people were doing, like when we, when we were talking about software, it was about spreadsheets, word processing, benign apps. Um, it's conceivable to think of any you know global scale problem because of those apps. These days uh, with uh, generative AI and um, uh, kind of a chat DPC like apps, this is on a global scale. So you have to be really careful. Yeah, and you know, the, the tools like chat GPT, they've almost democratized access to these systems, right? And yeah. so it'll, it'll just increase the ways in which people find utility for generative AI. But that's where we have to be extremely cautious and responsible with like how access to this is opened up to, uh, to the general public. Exactly. Now, looking back at your career, uh, which project do you think was the toughest? Um, that's a good question. I think uh, we built out this animation library for Facebook. Um, I think that was, this was like five or six years ago. And Facebook reactions was just being built and it was, it is now like one of their most critical products because that's how the users provide feedback to posts, provide feedback to, you know, like videos and photos and that kind of thing. And leadership was really insistent that it be done with animation. So we, we went and actually built an animation library that was able to render these reactions um, and, you know, like it has the same challenges of scale, like an animation is a very premium experience that it, it consumes a lot of resources and, you know, like it needs CPU, it needs storage, it needs to be able to render on, on your screen and at Facebook scale, you know, like you have to deal with like the very low end phones and like do it well, even on those phones as well. So I think that was one of our toughest project where we had to spend a lot of time just optimizing the animations to not break uh, low end phones and still continue to provide a good experience to them. Um, there is an open source product called Lottie by Airbnb that does a similar thing, um, but we had to go so much further uh, just optimizing it on low-end devices to make sure uh, it was performing well. It wasn't like making the overall Facebook experience poor. Uh, and I think that was easily one of our toughest projects. Yeah, I can imagine if you're trying to stretch the comp compatibility back to very uh, um, old models of phones and uh, operating systems is always a challenge. There's always this question, okay, at what point we're just gonna be dropping, like it's inevitable for Android and iOS at some point, there's gotta be this sacrifice. So guys, we cannot support anymore, you know, the versions of um, uh, like either hardware or um, 
Yeah, basically the hardware is always a limitation uh, how far back you can go. Rajesh, uh, being in mobile tech for more than a decade by now, uh, what would you like to change about it the most? Um, change the most? You know, I think phones have stopped being cool. Uh, about a decade ago, you used to get like these really cool looking phones, you know, the Nokia's and the Sony Ericsson's. Um, they were not smartphones, but they were innovative. They were clever. There was a lot of like manufacturing uniqueness to a lot of these phones. Uh, but all our phones now are just like one big screen. And, you know, I, I feel like the, the manufacturers have to experiment more with phones and like come up with more unique phones, which is why I'm a big fan of all the foldables that are coming out. Uh, you know, like there, Samsung first started, uh, you know, like experimenting with the foldable concept, but I think it's very innovative. I think it's, uh, it feels like it's these manufacturers starting to flex their muscle again and not just like put out yet another like full screen device. Um, and so I'm looking forward to what happens in the foldable space. And uh, I want to see more inventiveness uh, in the smartphone arena. Gotcha. All right. Uh, with this question, we're finishing the first part of the show and transitioning to the second one, where I, I have a chance to ask a few quick questions for every guest on this show. So people who are listening to us have uh, actually good chance to know a little bit more about my guests, not only the topic on the table, but who are these people beyond the topic? All right. Uh, I think I'm going to, I know the question, your answer for this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What smartphone have you been using and uh, um, are you on the one side all the time or switching between iOS or Android? Is it Google okay. Pixel? It is a Google Pixel. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, that's a good guess. Uh, but I'm, I've been an Android fan for almost a decade now. I've never owned an iPhone. Uh, I've always had Android phones. All right, let's jump back to the past. Uh, what was your first mobile phone, the one you can put in your pocket? Oh, wow. Uh, I think it was a Nokia. It's, it was one of those brick phones, uh, maybe like a 6600 or a 6300. Uh, I can't remember the exact number, but it was, it was a cool looking phone. And I think it ran Symbian OS. So yeah, a while ago. Yeah, the Symbian OS doesn't say a lot to people right now. But back in the day, it was a iOS for a mobile phone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Imagine right now uh, you just forgot your uh, Google Pixel at home and you're out for some business. Uh, what's the most missing feature for you? Um, I would have to say WhatsApp. Um, I communicate nonstop on it with friends and family and my I would feel handicapped without WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Okay. And... Um, the next one will be um, when you're looking at Google Pixel phone right now and you may go, wouldn't be great if this thing can do this or that. Hardware, software, both things and not something trendy, just, you know, from your perspective, what would make a thing more efficient, uh, useful for you? Um, I think overall more form factors and like more integration into people's lives is is the sort of transition I'm looking forward to um, in that 
how can we move beyond the phone? Like maybe, maybe it's like glasses, maybe it's like other forms of like wearable devices. Um, I think that's the sort of next significant shift in technology that I'm looking forward to. Got you. All right. Before I let you go, very, very final question. How can people get in touch with you and get more information about what you do? Oh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Great. All right, Rajesh. Thank you so much for coming and spending time with us. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you. Terrific. And that was Rajesh Janakerman, Engineering Manager at Gmail, Android at Google. To listen to more episodes, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Just search for Business of Apps and you will find us easily. Just remember, we release episodes on Mondays. So subscribe and you will be able to get new episodes on your smartphone, tablet, or computer as soon as we release them. And please don't forget to leave us a review or comment on iTunes. It is highly appreciated. And all episodes will also be available on businessofapps.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Business of Apps podcast. For more, head on over to businessofapps.com.